You are listening to The Heart of Christ, a year-long podcast of Wheatland Presbyterian Church. Throughout 2022, we will spend time reflecting on Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, so we can come to know not only what Jesus has done, but who he is. What is his deepest heart for his people, people who are weary, stumbling, sinners, and sufferers? So we invite you to grab your Bibles, prepare your hearts, and come along with us as we find rest in the gentle and lowly heart of Christ. Welcome to episode four of The Heart of Christ. My name is Keith Winder, one of the pastors at Wheatland, and today I'm joined by John Bush. John is one of the deacons here at Wheatland, and he and his wife, Krista, have two children, Malachi and Jude. And John and I will be reflecting on chapter six of Gentle and Lowly, which is titled, I Will Never Cast Out. So John, before we get going, thanks for doing this. Whether you want to or not, I'm not exactly sure. You can tell me when you're done. I'm determined. We'll figure it out at the end. Uh, Before we get going, just tell us a bit about yourself, because some people listening may know you, some people may not know you at all, uh, but just tell us a bit about yourself. Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. So I've been coming to Wheatland with my wife, Krista, and my son, Malachi, and we've since added on Jude since 2017 in April, around Easter. So we've been here for five years. It's been quite a journey, and we absolutely love being a part of the congregation. I work as a commercial lead for an R&D department. So as new products come out, I get to make sure they find homes and value in people's actual lives in the future. It's a a really fun role that I'm blessed to have. And I'm supported in that by my beautiful wife, Krista, who does uh, some anatomy work. She teaches anatomy on the side. And as a family, we absolutely love to do Uh, long walks in the park, and anything that requires outdoor gardening, fireplaces, and especially board games. I guess it's kind of more of an indoor activity as far as what we love to do, but we're we're thrilled to be a part of this community and this family here at Wheatland. Yeah, uh, John actually got, you got me into uh, board games, Lincoln and myself. Not that I'd never played a board game before, but I was still sticking with like Taboo, Connect Four, guess who, and those things. And now a whole new world has been opened up for me now that I've just discovered board games that are uh, expensive and fancier. But, well, so this book is about the heart of Christ, and we've been working through it as a congregation, and it's centered around this idea that Dane Orland says that Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. That the only time Jesus ever describes his own heart, he says that his heart is gentle and lowly. So before reading this book, I've asked everybody this so far, and I'm committed to asking it 23 times when we go through all these chapters. Before you read this book, if if somebody would ask you, what's Jesus like? Like, John, tell me about Jesus, or tell me about God. What's he like? How would you have answered that question? Over the years, I've been highly influenced by A.W. Tozer. He has a little book called Attributes of God. And so the complexity of Christ and that he's complex both from an emotional standpoint, a full human, full God, and has attributes of both compassion and grace, as well as strong justice that's there to protect me, to defend me. Those things really come out uh, from, from my 
review of, of who Christ is and have really influenced me a lot. Obviously, that's changed a little bit with this book, just reiterating the gentleness as a feature of who he is at his core. So I think it's continued to add to that list of attributes and that complexity that I think is a beautiful complexity in Christ. Yeah, it's interesting, too. In this book, Ortland has taken this quite deep dive into just one idea, gentle and lowly in heart. And of course, he, he's hitting it from all sorts of different angles. And as he does that, he quotes, as you've read, all these Puritan writers, and some of them he quotes over and over again. And I think that tends to be the way that Puritans often would a- approach this. They would take one idea or one verse and just keep squeezing it and squeezing it and squeezing it till everything is, is wrung out in a sense. My tendency has always been, I'm always drawn to, rather than this huge deep dive into one idea or verse or passage, I've always enjoyed just reading long sections. Uh, so it's a whole chapter or a couple of chapters and trying to draw out a broad theme. And so for me, I read this book uh, like a year and a half ago and just blew through it. It's like, oh, this book is great, but uh, yeah, it was fine, it was fine. But now reading through it really, really slowly uh, has been it's been way better. I'm sure this is the way it's meant to be read, is, is slowly and soaking it in. Mm-hmm. So as you read or listen to, to <laughs> books or listen to the Bible, read the Bible, uh, are you drawn to one of those two things? Taking really slowly, diving real deep, or sort of flying over things and getting broad themes? What are you, what are you drawn to? And how has that affected the way you've read this book or received this book? So my natural disposition when studying scripture is definitely to be a steeper. And by steeper, I mean like steeping tea. And I will sit with a a passage or a verse for a very long period of time. I remember in college meeting my wife for lunch at one point. I told her that morning, I'm going to study the book of James today. And at lunch I came and I was super excited about the third word in James 1.1. And so that was my very deep dive on a specific mm-hmm. passage. And, and that came from a lot of influences. I love Spurgeon and Spurgeon just gets so much richness out of two words that I think I, I naturally like to focus and I think like him a lot. But that has shifted over the last three or four years. I've really got into listening to an entire book in one sitting and kind of seeing some of the themes come out that I maybe missed or didn't realize how much Ephesians and Galatians and Romans all have a ton more in common when you're kind of taking that broader sweep. So over the last three or four years, I've mostly been listening to scripture and it's mostly been a 30 hour, or sorry, 30 minute, not quite that much of a marathon. (laughs) Uh, I wish I had 30 hours to sit. sit. Serious study, John. (laughs) Yeah, I'm also a monk. I've been at the monastery. No, just kidding. So we really, so I've liked to take 30 minutes and just listen and it paces me differently than how I would pace if I was reading. And so that's been a big part of my study, I'd say probably for about three years. And I've really appreciated that frame of reference and more of that reading through something in its entirety, an entire letter, an entire section of the Old Testament. Yeah. So the, so the deep dive that Ortland takes in this chapter is from John 6. Uh, and I encourage you... Uh, well, you, John, but anybody who's listening to, to read John 6 for the context of this. It's a, it's a longer chapter, but it's particularly verses 35 to 40. I'm just going to read verse 37, because 37, this is what he really zeroes in on and spends tons of time on. 
So it's this verse when Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And so that I will never cast out is the focus. But I wanted us to reflect a bit on this entire verse. And I think what it's what Jesus is getting at, especially when you read all the context, is that once the Father draws someone to himself, we will persevere by the power of Christ and the Spirit working in us. That, uh, Like in Philippians, when God begins a work in us, he brings it to completion. He doesn't give up, and this speaks of the certainty we have of our salvation, that we will persevere to the end. But what I've, I've struggled personally, and what we, we see and we all experience in some ways, is that the knowledge of this, that all that the Father gives to Jesus, whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. The knowledge that that's true, God's commitment to his people, should instill in us an assurance of our faith and salvation. It should bring continual and constant comfort that, like, oh, God has me, he will never let me go. But even though we have that in our minds, I think we still continue to struggle to believe that in the midst of our sinning and suffering, as Orla is talking about, God will forgive us and he will welcome us. So why do you think, you need to solve this for all of us here, right here, right now, John, but why do you think, even though we have, even if we're convinced of this doctrine of our perseverance and the faithfulness of God, why do you think we still struggle with this assurance that God will forgive us and keep welcoming us back into relationship? Well, I can talk a little bit about it from kind of a personal perspective. I, I think it affects a lot of us this way. We are not free from sin and other things attacking us and, and trying to become our masters. And I think about how easy it is for my own pride to shift just one or two degrees off course. And it's easy for me to begin to believe, hey, God really likes John. I mean, I, I just did something awesome the other day and uh, and I think God really liked it. So, hey, you know, and that pride starts to come in and then it's met with the next day, a total failure, a total mm-hmm. failure, either as a, as a father or as uh, you know, a worker or a husband or a church member or a leader in some capacity. And now all of a sudden I have to deal with the fact that, well, I thought God liked me and God didn't like me. And the whole time I recognize in my in my head that God is sufficient and he is assuring my salvation but that pride is such a fickle little thing that it turns those dials back and forth mm-hmm. and we can't quite live out the way we expect to as we're confronted with these things and that makes it a world that that has doubts and that makes it easy for me at least to fall into some of those doubts of assurance and, and Christ confronts that in the verse and when he he says never never I think you go into mm-hmm. that a little bit yeah. and yeah and so does um, the author. And it's just, it's one of those senses where he knows we're going to struggle with that in-between piece. And he says, look, like I'm, I'm going to grab you by the hair mm-hmm. and, and give you this assurance because you're going to need to hear it in a way that says, I'm not going to cast you out. Yeah. You know, I, I think about it in terms of when I'm going through the biggest struggles and I'm not meeting what I think I should be in myself. Uh, some people will call that a you know, a form of, of depression, there's a sense in which, yeah, you feel like a cast out. You feel like a castaway. And he confronts that head on. So I think that's why we struggle with it. We still struggle with pride. We struggle with these uh, these sins, even as we have this beautiful assurance. And I think he has to be as bold as he is in talking about assurance to give it to kind of get through some of our thick tendencies. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it is amazing how quickly uh, I make this about me. And like, depending on how my day is going, how faithful I thought I was or wasn't in that particular day or that particular week. Like, that always seems to determine whether or not I think God will uh, receive me when I come to him. Like, if, if, I never in a sense question whether God's going to do it. Like, I always believe, no, like, he will forgive, he will be faithful, he will be good, he will be generous and gracious. Uh, but I, I'm always caught up in myself and whether what I've done uh, makes me worthy to even step toward him. I guess, I guess that, that's where I struggle. It's not, I always know, at least intellectually, that God will receive me and receive my repentance. But sometimes I think that it's, it's hard for me to even take that first step moving toward him because I think like, what? well, no, it's just not, I'm so un, un <laughs> the things that I've done <laughs> are so stupid and unworthy. Like, I don't even want to, I don't even want, God shouldn't even have to do this for me. Like he's so much, I'm, I'm so mm -hmm. unworthy of this that I don't even want to put him into that position. And he's, these verses are always like, God's yeah. like, no, no, come to me, come to me, come to me. Over and yeah. over again. There's a sense in which it's really easy to hear the phrase, Keith, you're just awesome. Like, you're awesome. And because you're awesome, you don't need as much grace and support. Mm -hmm. And there are areas that we gravitate towards. And I, I really think that's why it's easy to have those doubts is because of that um, double-sided coin of, yeah. of doubt and pride going back and forth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the other lovely thing that, that's in this verse uh, is that it says, all that the Father gives me. So John, or Jesus, writing in John, is reinforcing this idea that is the Father who loves us and calls us to himself. And I love that because it pushes against uh, our tendency to see, think that the Father is angry with us, but somehow, and thankfully, Jesus snuck in <laughs> and somehow convinced the Father to relent from destroying us and sending us to hell. That, that oh yeah, like, like God, oh, it's a good thing that Jesus came down here and did this work because God was so mad at us. But what Jesus says is, no, like the Father has given me these people. And later in John 6, it says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up. On the last day. So this this idea that salvation is the work of the triune God and it's not salvation is not overcoming an angry Heavenly Father. Like what difference do you think this makes or what difference does it make for you and for all of us but as we approach God in the midst of our sinning and suffering? It's a really good question. I think part of it is it's easy to kind of dissect parts of God and almost view him as so you've got angry father, loving son, and you know, the Holy Spirit who's his helper, and almost provide it that these two things are always at war with each other in this mm -hmm. intense way, in their perfectedness in the triune nature of God. So you always have this battle. You can't be just and loving. And the reality is, no, he is all these things. God the mm -hmm. Father, who is the just maker of creation, who does it with the Son and the Holy Spirit. He's encompassing all these attributes. Mm -hmm. And and as much as we look to Christ and he says, my heart is gentle and lowly, Christ also says, you know the Father through me. 
And so we see the father being gentle and lowly. And there's this unity that's beautiful that I think really helps me and helps us to understand uh, that there's there's some consistency and continuity in these concepts that sometimes we have a hard time reconciling. Yeah. And, they're, and they're, they find their continuity in God, in his triune nature. And it gives me a lot of comfort to know that there's not warring factions in heaven and I'm going to be hiding behind Jesus before the judgment seat. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to be empowered because of what Christ has done, but empowered in a way where God's excited that Christ mm-hmm. has been sent. In fact, he's the sender of Jesus. So I think there's a lot of, uh, of unity there that's, that's stressed and gives us a little more confidence. We don't have to avoid the Father's eye on us at all times. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know if I've ever thought of it that way, but I think that's really helpful to think that the core struggle, when we tend to see, oh, the, the Father's like this, the Son, differently, is like this, and the Holy Spirit is over here like this. Not that since this is an audio medium, no one can see our hands moving around. But like that the Father is one way, the Son is one way, and the Holy Spirit is another way. And specifically that the Father is somehow angry and, and Jesus is, is rescuing us from that. That... Yeah, I think, like you're saying, at the core, that struggle is a struggle to see God as one God and three persons. Yeah, it's this core struggle to see God as united. There's this union. There's union and diversity in the Trinity, but it's a failure to see the unity of the Trinity, that that the Father and Son and Spirit all have this same heart together. And it's not that Sin doesn't need to be judged, obviously, and Ortland gets there as he moves through the book. But at the core of Jesus' heart is gentle and lowly, which also means, like you said, that's at the core of the Father's heart. It doesn't mean, oh, he actually has two different characteristics at the core of his heart. That in, in union, their heart is the same. And that's, yeah, that's helpful. I've never thought of it in that way. Um, so one thing that I, this is the most helpful thing, I think, for me in, in this chapter. I'm still wrestling with it. I don't even completely know, understand all the implications. But it says here in this verse that all that the Father gives me will come to me. So it will come to me, to Jesus. And it's a reminder or it's, uh, it corrects sometimes my assumption that in the midst of my sin that, when I am, that I'm going for a transaction with Jesus that it's not about some relationship, it's actually about me. I have to go to Jesus because then he provides something for me that I need, and then I can leave once I've, got, once I've achieved that transaction. And so this idea that when we come to Jesus um, helps me see that this isn't primarily about a certain set of doctrines or a connection to a particular church, although of course that is happening because what we believe about Jesus is what draws us to him. But foundationally, this is really about us coming to Jesus to find rest and salvation. And so in that way, I was thinking about like the phrase, like I had a come to Jesus moment, which like maybe sometimes I would laugh at and think like, ah, I, don't, I don't know, maybe that's overly emotional. I was thinking actually it's, that, that's helpful because that's what this is saying. Like all, all who are weary come to me and I will give you rest or here all the father gives me will come to me. And so I think that idea of having a come to Jesus moment is pushing us toward this recognition that this truly is about relationship and not a transaction. This really, what we actually need is Jesus. Jesus provides forgiveness, but what we actually need is, is Jesus. 
And so how do you think that idea that what we really need is a relationship with Jesus is maybe more helpful than just primarily considering that what we really need is to adhere to certain doctrinal standards or to receive this transaction with God? Yeah, I I believe doctrinal standards should help us get to know the person of Jesus and the person of Christ. And I think about you know, breaking through the ice, it's snowy outside or was earlier this month and you're out skiing, ice skating, and all of a sudden you're, you're drowning, you're going through this ice. There's not a, a God who's saying, well, first of all, you should have tested the ice's thickness in advance and make sure that, you know, it wasn't the right season or you, you got the right timing. And then, well, now that you're in this mess here, you know, here's, you can climb out to the left and there's thicker ice here and there's a step-by-step process to get out of the water it's not that kind of standard. He's going to come over in Christ with two big arms, grab you by the hair, the back of the neck, whatever, however, and pull you out of the water, mm-hmm. make a fire, sit you down, and make sure you're healthy. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. there's a, a huge comfort in knowing that a person of Christ is a person that has all these facets tied into a being. Mm-hmm. I used to use the term incarnational pedagogy or the idea that Christ came no, down taking flesh. Mm-hmm. And so that kind mm-hmm. of gets to those standards, but it's more than that. He, he came on with the goal of ultimately dying. Yes, he taught, he did, did these things, but he wanted to repair a relationship with Christ. His, his end game was always the same. It was yeah. always found in death as a person. And it sounds different talking about that in terms of a bunch of standards versus recognizing that a person came intending to die for you, for me, and for this beautiful church. Mm-hmm. And that there's there's a fullness there that can only come, I think, from recognizing there's a person we're coming to. Mm-hmm. And it's the same person who gets his hands dirty, comes into mm-hmm. the process himself, lives with people, and grabs us as people into a relationship with him. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember, I, I don't know, I think it was even with Kristen last time, and um, she, the, the, the book, and then some of her comments were pushing me to recognize just in that moment how I tend to be very transactional, probably in all of my relationships, but even like as I think about being a dad, like I forget that my kids need me. <laughs> like they need me as a person, as, as their dad, even more so then they need like the particular things that I might provide or even like they need my instruction obviously they need all these things but they really need me like if a vending machine could deliver to my kids or to friends like all these different things if a vending machine could deliver could deliver instruction to my kids or a video on YouTube could teach them about the Bible and Jesus and a video on YouTube could somehow or if Alexa in the midst of a moment where they're disobeying could provide redirection for my kids okay they're still receiving these things that they need but what they need is me like i you can't be replaced and i think in that sense uh the christian life like this it's nothing without jesus as a person and having this this relationship with jesus rather than uh just the sort of things that jesus provides like forgiveness which of course we desperately need forgiveness but we need forgiveness from jesus and in jesus and we need hope but we need hope from jesus and moved through us by the holy spirit it's not just about the thing it's much more so about jesus as a person and the relationship 
I want to read this final quote here from Ortland, and this is what he this is one line that he says. He says, It's not what life brings to us, but to whom we belong that determines Christ's heart of love for us. It's not what life brings to us, but to whom we belong that determines Christ's heart of love for us. And this reminds me of uh, the Heidelberg Catechism. My brother-in-law was just uh, talking to me about this first question, which asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? And it says that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And then later it says, because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. So that because you and I belong to Christ, because we have this relationship that we're talking about, now by the Holy Spirit and through the Holy Spirit, we are made more and more willing and ready to live for Jesus. So I think that this truth that Jesus will never cast us out, that we belong to him, is is not a reason, of course, to do whatever we feel like doing, uh, but it's a reason to keep coming back to him for forgiveness. That belonging to Christ changes our hearts. It shapes our desires. That we more and more want to follow Jesus. And then that even when we're struggling and even when we're hurting and even when we're stumbling and falling, we're more and more brought back to Jesus uh, in the midst of our pain and our struggle and our sin. How have you tried to communicate to, especially Malachi, because I'm not sure how much Jude is grasping the theological concepts yet. Mm-hmm. But maybe he is. Maybe he is just so far ahead of the game. But how have you tried to... He can to... stand on his own two feet. He so he's got, he's got temptations. He doesn't realize he's being supported by the life and yeah, breath right. of Christ. How, have, how, do, how do you try to communicate to Malachi uh, this, this idea that Malachi, no matter what, when you belong to Jesus, Jesus will keep... like and you go to him in repentance, he will never say, no, Malachi, no, Malachi. Like, keep coming, keep coming. In the same way, he probably asked him to do that to you as a dad and him, you and Krista as his parents. Like, Malachi, keep coming to us. Don't ever think that you did something that we're going to say, no, Malachi, we're done with you. Like, how have you tried to communicate that to, to Malachi? And maybe Jude, since he's standing on his empty feet. And yeah, so this, this, a, this is a well-timed question. This morning, we were using... Uh, the little booklet that Kristen handed out that had the Monday oh, through yeah, Thursday yeah. with the verses in it. And the verse that we happened on to today, because uh, today was about God's love on Tuesday, was a verse around assurance of faith and that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so Malachi and I went back and forth and played a little game as we were sitting eating breakfast saying, okay, so what, what can separate you from the love of God? And in that game, I intentionally pulled out Uh, several things he'd been talking about recently. So he was talking to neighborhood friends about war of states, and eventually he understood that it was war between Russia and Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And so he was asking, are there soldiers that come to our house? Those kinds of questions. Mm -hmm. So he's concerned about those external soldiers and monsters, and can that separate you from the love of God? No. Mm -hmm. And then we, we changed it a little bit, and I went into some of the disciplines that I've done of him recently. I was like, look, if I tell you you can't do this and you're in timeout, does that separate you from the love of God? Like when you do whatever it was, when you when you talk unkindly to mom or the other day he uh, he kicked Krista without warnings, was that something that uh, 
can separate you from the love of God. You got disciplined for it. God might discipline you and he disciplines us as his, as his sheep. But that doesn't separate you from the love of God. So we ended up going through actually a series of things that he knew he did wrong this week. And he was like, does that separate me from the love of God? No, it doesn't. And that was a really cool exercise because I want him to understand discipline and I want him to learn these things. But all the things that he can do wrong as a six-year-old aren't going to have a bearing on his love of, of God. And what I should do going back and maybe having another conversation with him later is remind him that I'm adhering to all the same principles or I'm supposed to be trying to, mm -hmm. uh, laboring to be like Christ. And in that way, I also am not going to stop loving you because of these things that you do. Mm -hmm. And the list can get pretty exhaustive. I mean, I have, uh, to, I try to have as little um, tolerance for you know, him acting out and kicking Krista as, as I can. I, I want to have some discipline to that and not let it go unpunished. But it's not going to separate him from my love. And it's, it's almost a way for me to remind myself of that as I'm trying to give him a picture of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing how, like you said, you share. And whether it's our own children or if you're volunteering and serving at church with other kids that we're, we're engaging with, how much kids, well, we all need to hear it. But how, what, what opportunity we have to share with kids that like all these things that you guys are struggling with and the things that you're wrestling with, like, does God still love me? Like, this is a lifetime journey for all of us. For this to sink in deep, deep enough that it moves from our head to our heart. And now there's this connection that we all truly believe this and experience this on a daily basis. And that's one of the reasons I've loved this book and look forward to our congregation continuing to go through it because I, I feel like it's just every chapter, it's over and over and over again, uh, reassuring me, not in a sense like I can just do whatever I want, but reassuring me that when I do, when I am weary and heavy laden, when I come to Jesus, when I respond with confession and repentance and come to him as a sinner and a sufferer, a sufferer he will continue to give me rest because his heart is gentle and lowly. And so thanks for joining me and uh, I'm looking forward to continuing to do this with our church at Wheatland and we look forward to reading more and also gathering together again on the first Sunday in April for our next Sunday evening gathering. So thanks, John. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Heart of Christ, a podcast of Wheatland Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit wheatlandpca.org.